Hi, everyone. Welcome to a new talk of Europe after coronavirus, a series of podcasts promoted by OpenEU Debate, a Jean Monnet sponsored network. My name is Carlos Carnicero Ravallen. I'm a journalist here in Brussels, and today we'll be talking about disinformation in Europe after the COVID 19 crisis. So, without further ado, let me introduce you to our great guests that we have today. Uh, Jorge Tuñón is the guest editor for today's podcast. And Jorge is a lecturer in journalism and communication at the University Carlos III of Madrid. And he coordinates the Jean Monnet Chair EU Disinformation and Fake News. Jorge, thank you for joining us and for helping us prepare today's conversation. Thank you so much for, for the invitation, for, for being here as well. Great, you're welcome. Uh, also joining us is Nadia Kovalchikova, and she's a program manager and fellow at the Alliance for Securing Democracy in the journal Marshall Funds, Brussels office. And she's specialized in disinformation and transatlantic security challenges. Thank you, Nadia. Thank you. Nice to be here. You're welcome. And last but not least, Emma Bryant is associate researcher in human rights at Bard College, New York. And she's the author of the book Propaganda and Counterterrorism, Strategies for Global Change and coordinator of the Women in the Sinfo community. Welcome, Emma. Oh, thank you so much. I'm delighted to be invited to join you today. Thank you. You're welcome. So let's get started. Um, so we're seeing for a while the rise of disinformation, and this is becoming more and more crucial for our democracies. So the first question I want to ask you is that even though if this phenomenon is not new, it's getting more and more relevant. So how can we explain that? And more importantly, why does it matter for democracy? Uh, Jorge, would you like to start? Okay, many thanks, Carlos, for the question. It's a really interesting one. Uh, well, I would say that the, uh, there might be uh, some kind of, uh, of, of different uh, factors uh, why uh, right now uh, this information has become into a much more important phenomenon. Indeed, the first one would be, uh, uh, let's say, uh, for example, uh, the development of social media. Uh, social media, had, there are some kind of uh, investigations that have uh, revealed that uh, uh, social media spread uh, um, this information six times faster than, uh, uh, than real information or true information. So indeed, this is something to take into account. Afterwards, I would also talk about the uh, uh, polarization uh, in societies, the growing of, uh, of the rise of populism, and uh, for sure, it's also very important, the lack of confidence of media and institutions. So this might be the so-called journalistic decline or uh, the growing of uh, citizen journalism. So indeed, uh, journalists had lost the monopoly to, uh, 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 to, um, to inform, to report to societies. And this is very important in the, in the spread of, uh, of, of this information. Uh, for example, in the last, uh, in, the, in, in, the, in this COVID-19 uh, uh, framework, uh, there are some, uh, some research that says that, for example, uh, this information has grown uh, uh, one third, so 33% plus than, than usual in, in normal times. So this is something to, to discuss about. Nadia, maybe why don't you share with us what's your take on, on this one? Why, why this information is such a worry, uh, such, a, such a challenging phenomenon and why, why, why it matters for democracy? Sure. I think especially the fact that um, currently and in the last years, there has been a very strong advancement of technology that 
allows not only for good and factual accurate information being spread, but also conspiracy theories and disinformation are now able to reach much wider audiences. And I think in the times uh, of the crisis as we are facing currently now, but also in more regular times, uh, we have a lot of issues that are already divisive and controversial and uh, polarize our society internally. And what disinformation does uh, to democracy is that it amplifies these polarizations and uh, therefore also contributes to weakening democracy, weakening the ties of of different groups within democracies or democracies between themselves. And I think this is very worrying, especially in the times of the crisis or post-crisis scenario, when you really need to bring people together, you need to have strong solidarity to help each other, but you also need trust in governments that uh, are making and adopting different measures and policies to counter the effects of this information, but also of the pandemic as we are facing now or any other important issues that are happening at the same time. So this trust is being undermined by disinformation tactics, disinformation campaigns, and we we are looking at a phenomenon that uh, contributes to to weakening democracy through these uh, tools of uh, undermining the trust, dividing different groups within our societies, uh, but also driving further wedges uh, beyond uh, the issues uh, that are happening right now, but also continuing the tendency of divisions uh, that have been already present in our societies. Thank you, Nadia. So this information really is a challenge, especially when at times of crisis, like the one we're currently uh, facing. Emma, would you like to, to complement that? Thank you. Um, yes, I, I also might take us in a slightly different uh, direction, if I may, on, on this question. Um, the issue for me actually more stems from uh, period where I um, was researching counterterrorism um, wars in sort of 2003, especially onwards, I was noticing a, a shift in the way in which we, you know, our, our you know, governments were funding uh, technologies of, of communication and information warfare. And um, during this whole period was, you know, the rise of sort of social media. And this obviously happened not just um, in a uh, commercial uh, environment, it also happened in a um, information warfare environment. Things transferred towards a more behavioral framework where you are gathering data for, of, uh, you know, behavioral data um, that is being increasingly harvested. And this is really the, the game changer. This stuff was being developed for warfare purposes originally and has now been, was being simultaneously commercialized and put out there for political purposes. And then when you have in 2012 in the United States, the um, Citizens United Act, which basically made available unlimited spending on political campaigns in the United States, this further incentivized people to go for that market when there was very little control over data. Um, and the counterterrorism wars were drawing down. So you have 
former per personnel who have been central in, in utilizing information warfare techniques and developing these kinds of methodologies, who then are shifting into commercial industries, which are massively expanding uh, over the subsequent years. Um, you also, of course, have similar um, technologies being developed authoritarian regimes. And I, I see this as having spiraled out of the, you know, especially the early um, period um, of hostilities um, after the, uh, the invasion of Crimea. This has turned into a real sort of um, arms race. And at the same time, when you're not fighting essentially the information war, you are selling your talents to uh, political campaigns. And the same kinds of companies are working for all of these different purposes. This raises real challenges, especially when there has been very, very little control over what can be done with our data. And the same kinds of methodologies are weaponized uh, for our democracy's political campaigns. Uh, so for me, it's it's a broader thing than just disinformation, um, as in false false messaging. It's actually about a whole political communication system that has transformed due to data availability and dark money. Thank you, Emma. So so there are two aspects here. One is the the content itself that that we can label disinformation, and then there's the technology side that is that makes it so much so so uh, viral. And, and so uh, um, dangerous. So, Jorge, are you are you? Uh... And, and the political economy, if I may add, please, uh, the political economy, because you have to pay for this stuff. There has to be. It's an industry. It's not just technology in abstract. All right, Jorge, would you like to to react to that? Yes, taking uh, taking uh, some of the contributions uh, uh, from from Nadia and, and Emma, um, I would like to uh, to add that the, uh, uh, in terms of uh, how this information might be affecting democracies, and following to the fact that due to social media, this is uh, uh, been uh, this has been done uh, faster and in a more efficient way. I would state that the, uh, we should combine this situation with. Uh, uh, different aspects. First one should be the lack of confidence on media and on institutions by the population. So uh, we are living the kind of uh, journalistic decline uh, with the uh, growing of uh, citizen journalism. So right now the monopoly of journalists to tell truth uh, is not going on anymore. And this uh, may uh, uh, cause some kind of distrust on, on societies. But uh, it's kind of important that uh, um, this information uh, has been uh, mainly used as a political communication strategy, as Emma said, by uh, populists. And indeed, uh, this has uh, grown the uh, issue of, uh, or this has involved to be divisive and confrontive. And uh, and for sure, this, this has fragmented societies, uh, uh, mainly, for example, with the last pandemic issues. And the risk for, for sure at the end for all, all of this might be that uh, uh, non-informed uh, uh, citizens would have to take democratic decisions. So at the end is what is this uh, what is most important at risk. So I would like to highlight these issues. Thank, thank you, Jorge. Uh, Nadia, maybe you can you can mm -hmm. complement that, uh, referring, connecting this to what's been happening in the European Union in the in the last years. And of course, this information is a is a more and more a hot topic in the EU 
in the in the last in the last uh, in the last years we had a Brexit where this was uh, very controversial and we've had other elections where this uh, subject was raised. How would you react to that? Yeah, well, in Europe, I think a lot of the attention uh, given to countering this information or exposing this information is given especially around the time of elections. But I think what is very important to, to note is that this information is amplified, it's spread a lot uh, across the whole election cycle. And the, the attention given to it should be also much more systematic and uh, regular. And so even though we have different elections and there has been much more attention given just prior to the European Parliament elections uh, last year, then there have been uh, continued efforts to improve our 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 approach to disinformation, to countering disinformation from the EU institution side. We are now awaiting the European Democracy Action Plan, where one of the three priorities will be not only election integrity and media diversity and pluralism, but also countering disinformation. But we also see that uh, uh, various uh, European uh, member states, EU member states, are actually developing tools and coordinating efforts a bit more than before to counter disinformation. Uh, so. It's very important to to keep that in mind that uh, we have to continue developing such tools, uh, have uh, uh, important uh, cooperation and coordination, but also understanding what we are fighting uh, before we can actually fight it better. Either be it uh, disinformation uh, sources, you know, where is it coming from, or the tools, methods, tactics uh, that are being used. So that's very important to keep in mind whenever we are uh, uh, discussing this issue, but also trying to develop measures. Uh, so let's see what comes out of the European Democracy Action Plan, also what uh, different member states uh, are uh, going to uh, do in the next uh, few years in order to be more effective encountering and uh, we can also uh, see how what we learn from this crisis of COVID-19 now because uh, there have been some tools that have been actually developed and implemented during the crisis that I hope will be sustained also beyond the crisis. Thank you Nadia. So Emma as Nadia is saying is this doesn't happen only during elections it's about the whole political cycle but we've seen that during elections this information is where when it becomes more uh, challenging and more dangerous and when its effects can really change things in our democratic system. So wh why do you think that's the case? Well, because obviously there's a, um, uh, a political potential shift in uh, the ability to, you know, lead your uh, nation at those important times. But that doesn't necessarily mean, like you say, that things can't be, you know, important at any point. And there's an ongoing battle against uh, what I would rather term propaganda. Um, I, I think it's per personally unhelpful to refer to disinformation only. Um, it is just one strand of uh, propaganda. And the problem is that we are focusing very um, narrowly on, you know, false, deliberately false information uh, and how it's spread and consumed. And one of the problems is, is that we're not recognizing how systematic it is and how structural this problem is. And in posing solutions like uh, countering it, you know, essentially we're, we're, we're constantly talking about how to counter disinformation or, or what uh, 
you know, what uh, we can do to stop people uh, engaging with it. Um, we're really kind of, in my view, fighting a losing battle, if that's the way that we frame the problem. I think we need to think about it more holistically. Communication is a, is, is a, you know, a process that also involves the level of production and people responsible for putting money behind these campaigns. Um, and they are not just doing it only at election time. They are creating the technologies and the, the, the frameworks through which to uh, shape, um, sh shape what we uh, are consuming all the time. And if you really want to counter disinformation, what you do is invest in journalism and transparency tools and make politics more open. And this is the discussion that we really need to be having. And the problem is that um, a lot of these efforts that are being dressed up as countering disinformation have been really, you know, um, efforts to emphasize uh, official, uh, official propaganda, basically, uh, by governments. And I don't think that helps either. Um, we're being frequently encouraged to um, accept official sources uh, more readily. And this is something that is even being emphasized in, um, in, in the media. And um, while that is a, a definitely a, a valid um, proposition during times of COVID-19, we need to be telling people to listen to medical advice and medical practitioners. A general statement about, you know, official sources and how they should be amplified is unhelpful in our, um, you know, political communication environment. You also see um, political campaign efforts to counter one side of politics, such as in the United States. Um, the Democrats have set up something called defeat disinformation, which actually is a political um, pack and is about countering Trump. Well, that's, you know, just countering Trump. That is not actually defeating disinformation. Um, and it, it politicizes real counter disinformation efforts that are actually just good journalism. Thank you, Emma. Uh, very, very good points indeed. So moving on, let's, let's consider who are the actors behind this disinformation campaign and what are their goals and how can we eventually uh, prevent them from uh, challenging uh, elections and overall democracy. So Emma, you've been studying quite in detail what happened with Cambridge Analytica and Brexit. Mm -hmm. and, and I want to ask you, are there any lessons to be learned from that? And, and maybe more importantly, can we prevent that from happening again? Difficult questions. Um, <laughs> definitely, there are a lot of, lot of lessons we need to learn from Cambridge Analytica, many of which haven't been learned yet. And I think um, part of that was because a lot of the focus of the attention around Cambridge Analytica ended up on uh, Trump and Brexit, and um, and a lot of the places that they were working in, and the you know um, uh, the scandals that were revealed, um, tended to 
be lost if they were not, you know, wrapped up in these extremely contentious debates around around uh, ele an election and a referendum that really did transform, uh, um, you know, these the Britain's relationship to the EU and and of course uh, American politics in a, a major way. So um, the issue is that actually we. What I understand by Cambridge Analytica is probably not what you understand as Cambridge Analytica. A lot of the debate got caught up in, in the, the dual scandal that emerged around Facebook. And that was one, you know, using the Facebook data was one of their methodologies, only just one. And of course, uh, any campaign company works in different ways around the world, depending on the campaign that it's working in. Personally, I feel that a big part of the solution to all of this is to open up the influence industry, the wider influence industry that Cambridge Analytica were a part of. We need more scrutiny of its operations and more of these kinds of mapping projects, which would help to reveal the underbelly of a political communication system. A lot of the focus has been on Facebook and very little on, on the unregulated industry which uh, creates all of this content that we're supposedly countering all the time. I feel like we're playing a, a giant game of whack-a-mole online. And um, unfortunately, I think a lot of this really relates to sort of the corruption of these industries, how obscure they are, the lack of transparency over funding, and, um, and how they're able to operate um, as networks across different jurisdictions. There needs to be better understanding of the business models, not just of digital platforms like Facebook and Twitter and so on, uh, but also about how these political and, and military uh, campaign firms work and the potential security and data breaches and, um, and violations of data rights and so on that may be, may be uh, revealed by a better understanding of what is going on uh, at that level. Um, the Cambridge Analytica scandal really, for me, reveals um, just how opaque the influence industry is. They were just one small to medium-sized company. If you look at um, the propaganda.tech website, it'll reveal to you the scale of what this small company was doing. And this is one company in a multi-billion dollar industry that we know virtually nothing about. Wow. So we need far more scrutiny at that level. How, just a little question, Emma, a follow-up mm -hmm. on that one. How many Cambridge Analytica we have in Europe and the US? Of course, I don't, I'm not, I don't expect you to give me a number, but how spread this kind of consultancy firms, uh, how, how present they are in our countries? Because it's so opaque as you said, this phenomenon that I don't have a clue, honestly. Uh, Tactical Tech have, have published a list of campaign firms. Uh, Tactical Tech are a European um, data rights and data ethics uh, non-profit. They're excellent. Um, and they've produced a list of 350, which is a tiny fraction of the English um, language-oriented um, companies that work just in political campaigns. And, you know, as I say, this is a tiny fraction. Um, at the moment, if anybody listening is, is uh, knows of, of funders, 
I'm actually seeking funding to build a map of all of the uh, influence industry. So this is a really ambitious project that I'm seeking to fund this because the problem is we don't have a clue of the scale of this industry. And there are lots of data sources available. And um, I've, I've mapped one company, Cambridge Analytica, and what they're doing. What I really want to do is to look at all of these different companies, many of which are entirely legitimate. But what it would do is to enable us um, a tool that, that journalists can go to, that policymakers can go to. And we absolutely badly need um, to have a real proper measure of what's being done by whom, who the clients are, where the money's going. And this is stuff that can be created with a little bit of um, attention and money behind research on this level. The problem is all research money tends to go to tracking online content and how it's being consumed. And we need a more balanced approach to um, understanding the problem and researching it. Well, we badly need uh, that map. So, <laughs> but, but, but Jorge, uh, so as we, as we just heard, there are so many of these actors ready to interfere and to, to spread this information. So maybe what, what, what's your take on, on how can we combat this, these campaigns? Well, uh, indeed, this is the, a tough question. This is the right question. And uh, um, I would say, as uh, uh, for example, before Nadia and, and, and Emma had uh, revealed that uh, there might be different uh, approaches or different angles to, uh, to discuss about. Uh, indeed, uh, well, uh, for example, uh, we should have into account uh, the relation uh, uh, in, the, in this disinformation fight and uh, the rise of uh, populism. So there, uh, there's something to discuss and uh, to what extent uh, we can build up some kind of models that could uh, be coming to some kind of uh, departments of truth. Uh, this is going to have uh, democratic problems in some in some uh, in some uh, territories. Afterwards, uh, it should be also uh, it should be also important to discuss about the legitimacy and the efficacy of, uh, for example, platforms as uh, uh, Facebook or Twitter or, or any other ones in fighting against this information since, uh, well, they are private companies. They are looking for their own profit. So why they should be looking for, uh, for, uh, for, for fighting against this information? So this is something to, to discuss about. And maybe uh, going in depth to your main uh, issue or question, Carlos, uh, um, uh, we, for example, in the Academy are discussing if uh, uh, fact-checking or verification, which is right now very uh, fashionable, is the uh, the right uh, the right uh, solution uh, towards this information? Because indeed, uh, it has been proved, it has been tested that the, uh, by fact uh, checking, uh, we are uh, we are to some extent we are supporting the uh, the disinformation we want to discredit. Because indeed, we consume information uh, with the, the so-called confirmation bias. So that means that we uh, we just uh, 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 consume and we trust on uh, the reflections that are really in in line with our uh, previous ideology. So indeed, uh, just through fact checking, it has been tested that uh, um, this is not uh, is not being useful at all because indeed it's a kind of highlighting the disinformation and it's not having uh, uh, it's not being at, uh, really really useful. So there have been some other proposals. 
that uh, are the so-called framing or the promotion or alternative of alternative frames just in order to try to fight against disinformation. Uh, uh, but the main issue is to realize, and this is to link with what Nadia and Emma said before, that disinformation uh, 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 techniques are evolving. And it is kind of important to realize that we should be able, or the, for example, uh, um, democracies or countries or, or supranational organizations such as the European Union cannot rely on being always behind uh, of uh, um, uh, disinformation, because indeed this was uh, this wouldn't be uh, effective uh, 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 at all. So this is something to uh, to uh, to have in mind uh, all these four main uh, topics while. Uh, uh, um, fighting against this information, I would say. Nadia, what's your what's your view on on that on on, on the, the huge challenge of, of fighting these, uh, these 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 sectors and these campaigns? I think a lot of very good points uh, were made, and I would just maybe bring it to back to the whole of society approach, where there are various actors that uh, play an important role in encountering disinformation, I would say from the governments or the EU, NATO institutions to also the media and civil society and private industry. And therefore, the toolkit that we need to adopt and we need to enhance, I would say, needs to be well coordinated between these actors. And there should be alliance of democracies and alliance of the actors that want to defend democracy from from disinformation and the spread of uh, manipulated information and uh, uh, the confusion that it creates, the further confusion that it uh, fuels. So I think the whole society approach is a first important point. Um, also that disinformation, as Emma mentioned earlier, is only one of the issues. And we at the, the Alliance for Securing Democracy, we are actually looking at four other tools of interference because we are looking at authoritarian interference in democracies. And those are also cyber attacks, those are also strategic economic coercion or subversion of political parties or malign finance. And that's why looking at disinformation as being part of uh, uh, other, uh, part of bigger toolkit is also very important that it's not happening in silos from other, uh, from other actions or uh, interferences. And perhaps uh, coming back to the other, more bottom-up level, is building resilience. Because there is one uh, one thing that we can be countering one and responding when we see this information being spread and the effect uh, that it's uh, trying to have on our democracy. But also we have to be proactively uh, addressing the vulnerabilities that exist within our societies that are being exploited uh, through these efforts. So we need to be building the resilience and have more preventive measures, more affirmative narratives, uh, more um, uh, programs to enhance uh, the media literacy, the digital literacy, the uh, development of critical thinking. So also not not forgetting or not missing the aspect of building the resilience as a as a as an immunity to disinformation and uh, interferences that are trying to undermine the democratic institutions and processes. Moving on, uh, Jorge, uh, I think Nadia was just uh, mentioning something that is important and we've seen in the last years uh, si since Brexit and, and since the US uh, presidential elections, we, we there, there were rumors and more than rumors confirmed cases of uh, authoritarian regimes using this kind of uh, 
disinformation campaigns to interfere in the elections in in Europe and in the US. So and now we we got a huge crisis like COVID nineteen, and I'm wondering how this how this clicks into place and and if if you could maybe react to that. Yes, sure. Many thanks, Carlos. Um, yes, indeed. Um, I would say that uh, um, traditionally, uh, for example, European Union has uh, uh, realized that uh, most of the disinformation in uh, uh, its territory came from uh, Russia. And indeed, uh, well, uh, for sure, Russia denies this kind of situation. It's plain this is just uh, uh, public relations and, and, com and political communication strategies. And indeed, uh, well, uh, just after uh, this, as, as, as usual, this has happened uh, uh, for, for years, for decades. And indeed, only after the uh, Trump election and the Brexit uh, and all the Kremlin's analytical story, uh, the European Union realized that uh, uh, they will, they may have a problem in the last uh, uh, European Parliament elections of two, uh, 2019 uh, if uh, they uh, allow the, um, the spread of this information in the European territory, because this may involve the growing of uh, populist or europhobic uh, parties. So indeed, uh, Russia has been the, uh, let's say, the enemy for the European Union uh, from time to time. And uh, it's interesting to realize that, for example, uh, the last uh, the last polemic we had in Brussels, like uh, two or three weeks ago, where uh, Politico, which is this, uh, I'm pretty sure you know it, this uh, this journal in Brussels, based in Brussels, they state that the, there was kind of a report by the uh, by the Commission, I think, on uh, on on disinformation uh, related to this COVID-19 situation. And indeed, uh, it seems that uh, most of the uh, of the um, of, of the well, uh, the, um, the managers state that the, um, uh, there there was kind of problematics with uh, uh, disinformation from China. And indeed, just yes, in order to save the relations and the, the trade relations with China, it seems that this report has been kind of uh, softened or, or lightened. It. So indeed, uh, uh, it's kind of uh, kind of issue, kind of problematic, because indeed. Uh, uh, how do you how do you uh, fight against this against this information when while you auto censor yourself as an institution as an um, supranational organization? This would be something to uh, to reflect about and to discuss about in the in the close future of uh, European Union fighting against this information and external uh, third, third, third countries. Well, thank you, Jorge. So, uh, Nadia, Jorge has mentioned like powerful countries like China using these kind of technologies and tools. And I wonder from the EU perspective, what to do about that when you have an actor like China entering in that territory? Well, that's a very good question. And uh, Jorge mentioned uh, relevant points uh, because we have seen during the COVID-19 crisis, actually a certain change in tactics of China during uh, the pandemic. Uh, the activity online uh, that China has been pursuing, especially across Twitter, uh, official diplomatic accounts have become much more assertive than uh, prior to the Hong Kong protests uh, last year. So during the COVID-19, we see that uh, China has been adopting the strategy that we usually have been seeing coming more from Russia. Before China would promote positive image of China, propaganda in the sense of trying to have and elevate um, a positive international image, while that would reflect back uh, to their domestic audiences. But during COVID-19, they actually started to be much more aggressive in their communication on uh, social media. 
So this is something, this is a new phenomenon that we have been monitoring uh, that is also important to expose. So we see that there are uh, adaptation of tactics of these actors of authoritarian regimes between themselves, uh, also trying to see what are the similarities, the differences, and how does it evolve over the time. So understanding, first of all, the strategy and the tactics is uh, is important point. Second of all, it's also important to understand why are they doing it, what's the kind of ultimate intention. From our uh, monitoring and analysis, we have seen that so far it seems to actually try to also contribute to the divisions and to the confusion, again, which tends to be the intention of, of Russia. So understanding why they do it. And then when we when we have this uh, deeper understanding of the of the tools and of the intention, we have to develop a, a strategy towards that. That should be also longer term strategy, sustainable efforts. Uh, now, uh, you know, EU has already the EU China strategic outlook that is, uh, I think, uh, more or less a couple of years old. And they are now reflecting that perhaps there should be some update of this strategy, considering also the change of the tactics or uh, developing behavior of China during COVID-19. So I think this is very important, the assessment and then uh, looking into um, update of our approach and understanding what are our capabilities and what are their capabilities and how do we have to adapt to the changing situation. Thank you, Nadia. In, in fact, very good points on, on how to analyze and how to even uh, combat uh, foreign actors when they enter in this kind of tactics. Emma, what your view from the from the US? What is your view on this one? The trouble is a lot of the time we are clouded by our own perspective, by our own situation and uh, concern for our own elections and so on, which is quite reasonable. But we are not necessarily looking at the tools that we are deploying and how effective they are and helpful they are in actually defending us. A lot of the programs that we've been operating, for instance, um, as a counter to Russia, um, have, have proved quite um, unhelpful from a UK perspective. Um, they've been, if anything, counterproductive. Um, the post-Cambridge Analytica um, changes and, and uh, efforts to, to build um, an apparatus that will counter Russia um, generally has just put more money into the same industries that created SCL, the parents of Cambridge Analytica. And uh, we've seen a lot of, you know, leaked and, and sometimes hacked um, evidence of what the UK government is doing, which, um, you know, is, is essentially fairly anti-democratic at times. And this fuels narratives from the Russian perspective of, you know, Russian RT, state-sponsored uh, media in the, in the UK and so on uh, that they put out, uh, their claims uh, that, you know, um, attack and fuel division within the UK um, get supported with this kind of uh, evidence. I personally think that the role of the media and journalists is to counter uh, disinformation, uh, not for our government to be doing these kinds of activities. Um, and I don't think that they help when they are covert and um, obscured in this way, because they will come out eventually and end up being used to fuel Russian or 
propaganda from other sources, not necessarily Russia. Um, so I, th I think the way we go about this is entirely wrong. Personally. Thank you, Emma. So we're, we're slowly coming to an end, but I've done this in previous podcasts and I want to do it with your with you today. I think this is very, very interesting. And, and let's try to finish this way. Uh, this is a podcast for dreamers and we're going to dream a bit. So I want to ask you uh, to share with us one measure, something that you would like to see in the near future happening so that we can prevent this kind of disinformation campaigns. So it can be anything from uh, social platforms uh, taking X measure or uh, seeing uh, a certain type of regulation being passed in the Western world. I don't know. I just want you to think of one key measure that would make our democracies stronger because we would have a more informed debate and less of these campaigns. So who wants to start this uh, this final little game? I can start. Um, Come on, Nadia, uh, you got it. I mean, these are always these are always uh, uh, tough questions to answer. Uh, the concrete measures, what can be done? I think uh, what I have actually uh, seen as a as a positive uh, development is the the peop the realization that we need to support the investigative and independent journalism. And the way we need to support it is also, especially now we see it during the COVID-19, uh, it's also financially, there needs to be more funding given to longer term research, to quality research, and also the protection of the independent and investigative uh, journalists. So I think this concrete measure we have seen, there have been, I think a couple of weeks ago, uh, uh, funding from the commission, um, to the uh, investigative journalism, I think this is uh, this is a interesting and important step forward, and this should be also sustained. I think over time, uh, just seeing how to how I think it will be important to see how to uh, fund this kind of effort so that the, the journalism actually can still stay independent enough. But uh, it's good, uh, I think, good to keep that in mind. Good answer. Thank you, Nadia. So funding for uh, research to ensure that we have good quality journalism. So uh, Jorge, do, what's, what's your magic recipe to, to, to finish this conversation? Mm -hmm. Well, Carlos, thank you so much. Indeed, uh, Nadia has been faster. So <laughs> I, I, I had written here promoting quality journalism. So I think it's, it's Nadia's issue. So I'm gonna I'm gonna opt for a second one, which is also important to me as well, uh, which is uh, well, it's an issue of educating society on uh, doubting, on questioning about the information they receive, because it's not innocent if afterwards they. Uh, um, they share that information, which which is disinformation and which might be fake news. So indeed, it's very important to uh, uh, to educate the population in terms of okay, please think about how did you receive this uh, uh, information? Why? Who might be behind? Is this reliable or not? What are the sources? Please check, verify a bit, and just to avoid uh, sharing whatever might not be. Uh, accurate or true. So indeed, be two things: uh, society first, and for sure, uh, promoting uh, uh, um, quality journalists as well would be two two key issues for me at least. All right. So more informed society that before they before we all share something, we double check to ensure that that is accurate. Uh, very good point, uh, Emma. Your your final yeah. I, I forty seconds. What's your take? I thought about it. I think to be honest with you, it's not even an 
specifically information-related one. It's, I believe, really very, very strongly that we need to sort out dark money. I think we, we need to look at making more transparent um, funding for political campaigns and uh, get rid of shell companies. That would be my number one thing uh, that I think would be massively beneficial. I think yeah. that's a great point. Transparency for funding to ensure that you know political parties and candidates are are or, or, or are who they say they are. Uh, that's a very that's a very good point. Um, okay, thank you, uh, the three of you. I think this was very informative, and I think we 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 touched on many elements, and I think we we did a little contribution to to see more informed debates and stronger democracies. Uh, without this kind of uh, interference and, 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 and can campaigns uh, challenging our elections and pretty much everything. So, uh, thank you. Thank you so much. Bye. Thank you. Thank you so much. This was, all, this was all for now. Europe After Corona is a series of podcasts promoted by Open EU Debate and produced by Agenda Publica. We will continue this conversation very soon because, yes, These lockdown days are slowly coming to an end and we need to be ready with answers on the post-corona world that is around the corner. Stay tuned.